Well, I knew a man who was involved in ministry to people in hospitals. He was a hospital chaplain and he would go around and visit people who had requested a visit from a minister. And this gave him great opportunity to be able to speak about the gospel with all sorts of different people with varying degrees of understanding of just who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And he used to have a framework of three questions that he would go through with people. The first question was, who do you think God is? Tell me about God, in other words. The second one was, well, what do you think about the church? And people generally always had an opinion about the church. Now, this conversation could have gone just for a few minutes or it could have gone by an hour by this particular point. But the third question he had was a very helpful question to ask. And that was, well, Tell me about where Jesus fits in. We've spoken about God, we've spoken about the church and your view in regard to both of those, but where does Jesus fit in? And inevitably, there would be a lot of confusion in many cases, not every case, but in a lot of cases, there would be confusion about where Jesus actually fits in. Now, I'm assuming that because there was confusion concerning just who Jesus is and what he's done, I'm assuming that there would have been confusion about the meaning of Jesus' death. And so it was a great opportunity for this particular minister to be able to clarify the gospel or to share the gospel with the people that he was visiting. We do need to be people who are very clear about the meaning of the death of Jesus. And that is the focus of the talk today, and I think also the passage that we're looking at from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 26. In this particular passage, we see concern by the disciples for the Passover ceremony in terms of its celebration. Jesus then gives them some instructions about how it is to be set up. He then turns up for this particular ceremony of the Passover. We then read how we're told they're of a disciple who would betray Jesus, who we later understand to be Judas. And then what we have is this extraordinary account of Jesus reinterpreting what this Passover is about. And we'll look at that in a little bit more detail. But I've mentioned this word Passover, and I want to try and explain this to you. When we start to think about the Passover, there are sort of four balls that could be in the air in terms of our thinking. The first ball is the idea of what the Passover event was in the history of God's people when they were rescued from slavery, from Egypt, delivered across the Red Sea via Mount Sinai. They then entered into the Promised Land. That was referred to as the, the Exodus, but what we also know is that there was a major Passover event, which I'll come back to in a moment. The second ball in the air is that this great event of the Passover, which was the most significant in the life of God's people, was memorialized or celebrated annually. The Passover ceremony was held each year, like we would have Anzac Day, a memorial remembering the great Anzac event of Gallipoli many, many years ago. So that's the second ball. The third ball is that Jesus reinterprets the meaning of the Passover and he gives it 
different symbolism and meaning, which is the third ball, which we'll look at and be our, it will be our focus today. And then the fourth ball is this idea of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, which we are basing upon accounts like this. So when we're reading through this, there are a number of balls that are going on uh, you know, up in the air, and it's really helpful to be able to distinguish between them. But as I said, what we're particularly focusing upon is actually this Passover ceremony that was held and how Jesus is actually changing the meaning or reinterpreting it. Now, I'll speak about that particular event that was celebrated annually in a moment. But I think it's really important to understand what was the actual event originally. The original event was set way back in Egypt uh, a long time ago. And what we found was that God's people were in slavery in Egypt. They were under oppression by Pharaoh, who had a hard heart towards them. They had wanted to leave to go and to worship God, but they had been prevented. Now, God sent 10 plagues to the people of Egypt. And each time Pharaoh was prepared to release God's people to be able to go off and worship God. But then he changed his mind and they never quite got out of Egypt until the 10th plague, which was the plague of the death of the firstborn. This was a plague which meant that the first male in a family or, 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 or amongst the animal group would uh, perish, would die. It was the plague of the death of the firstborn. Now, that would come upon the people of Egypt. Now, God's people were in Egypt, but they were people who were saved from this. They were rescued from this or redeemed from this. They were, were, were spared in an event which we know to be the Passover. God made a provision for them to be passed over so that this angel of death that would come to each household would not actually come to their household because they will have in advance slaughtered a lamb and will have taken the blood and put the blood on the doorposts and also the, the, um, the top of the, the, the doorway frame. They will have put their blood there. The angel of death would see that and would pass over them so that they were actually kept safe. They were then able to leave Egypt. Finally, Pharaoh allowed them to go. They crossed the Red Sea. They went to the place of Mount Sinai, which I'll speak about a little bit later. And then they entered into the Promised Land. That was the famous event of the Passover, the famous Passover event, which is really that first ball I was talking about. Now, this was memorialized or celebrated annually so that God's people could remember this very great act of deliverance. And in this ceremony, they had lots of symbols. And one of them was that they ate lamb, which reminded them of the blood that was shed uh, on that Passover event so that it could be put on the doorposts and so forth and uh, so that they would be passed over. They also had unleavened bread. They ate that at this memorial meal, which reminded them of their hasty departure from Egypt when they weren't able to prepare uh, bread in the same way. They didn't have that time to be able to do it. They have a bowl of 
tears and some bitter herbs, which reminded them of the bitterness and sadness of slavery. And also the bowl of tears reminded them of passing through the Red Sea. So this memorial meal was rich in symbolism, reminding them of this event that had occurred. Now, what's really interesting is that this was celebrated year after year, but on one year, Jesus, shortly before he was to go to the cross, comes and celebrates this meal with his disciples, and he connects his death with this Passover ceremony, remembering this great Passover event. And this is where we see in verses 22 to 25 some incredible truths that are so helpful for our salvation. Let me read these for us. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. So, he took the bread, the unleavened bread, and he equates that unleavened bread with his body, which he is saying is um, effectively given, given, given up. And we'll see that more fully as we go on. Verse 23, then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. Okay, so that's a cup of wine that he is uh, equating or uh, saying um, is talking about his, um, the blood that would be shed by him on the cross. He says in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant. Some translations will say the new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. So I repeat that. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, in these words that Jesus speaks, reinterpreting the Passover, giving it new symbolic meaning, we do see three things about the meaning of Jesus' death. First of all, we see that we are saved. Secondly, that we are forgiven and thirdly, that we have a future. So first of all, we are saved. It is a very, very interesting thing that Jesus speaks about his death. He connects his death with the story of the Passover. The Passover was remembering God's people who were saved. They were saved from slavery physical slavery they were also saved from spiritual death sorry from uh, physical death so they were saved from physical slavery and they were saved from physical death okay the physical death was of course that they were passed over by that angel of death because of the blood of a lamb so because of that blood of the lamb being shared and put up on the the doorpost and the lentil of the um, of the of the properties that they were in they were passed over they were saved they were rescued but i'm just using the word saved so that we can keep things really really clear they were saved by the blood of the lamb what jesus is also saying to us is that christians are people who are saved from slavery to sin and also spiritual death 
through the body and the blood of Jesus. So Jesus is speaking about his death in the context of the Passover. And the Passover is remembering a great saving act of God. And Jesus is saying that his death would be a great saving act of God. God's people would be passed over. Judgment would pass over them. They would be kept safe because of the death of Jesus. Now, there's a wonderful illustration that I came across. Perhaps you've even heard of it before, but there was a person who was working for the National Park Authority in, I think, the United States. Is that where the Yellowstone National Park is? I think it may be. But he was working for this particular authority in that location, in that national park, the Yellowstone, the famous Yellowstone National Park. And there'd been a bushfire that had gone through. And it was very sad because he came across this bird that had obviously been affected by the bushfire, cindered, sort of was burned effectively to, to death. And he was quite sad as he saw it up at the, uh, the base of a tree. And he had a stick with him, as you could imagine, as he was walking through the wilderness. And he just, I don't know, moved the bird, perhaps just to check a, a few things or to give it a burial. And as he, as he uh, moved that bird, as it rolled onto its back or rolled over, he saw that there were all of these little birds, these baby birds that were still alive. What had actually happened was that this bird had actually protected its young. It had given its life and it had sacrificed its life so that this great danger of the bushfire would pass over and they would be kept safe. And that's just what Jesus Christ has done for us. He is like that bird who sacrificed uh, their, its life for the little baby birds. We are like those little baby birds. We are spared because that danger has passed over at the expense of Jesus. So what we see is that his death is associated with the Passover, which means that it is associated with a saving act. And what we know is that we are saved through his death. That is the first point. The second point is this, is that we are forgiven. In verse 24, we're told two really important things. We're first of all told about this idea of the covenant. And secondly, there is this expression about his blood being poured out for many. So we're just going to look at those two, but we'll look at them in reverse order. So first of all, what we see is the idea of uh, his blood being poured out for many. Now, what we do have is some incredible uh, verses, which I just want us to connect with. This expression, poured out, that is referring to his blood, is actually connected with the forgiveness of sins. Now, we know that because that expression poured out is connected with Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, which is speaking about the servant figure. There are a whole lot of passages in Isaiah that speak about this, this identity of the servant, which we understand is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let me read to you this verse, and you'll see these words come up. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death 
and was numbered with the transgressors. Does that sound like Jesus? Yes, it does. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So this servant, which is referring to Jesus, would in fact bear sin and he would enable effectively sin to be forgiven. So when Jesus is actually speaking of himself in terms of his blood being poured out for the many, he is actually speaking about his blood enabling forgiveness. The second expression is this one called the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. In some translations or other parts of gospel accounts, what we do see is that that's referred to as the new covenant. There was an old covenant and there is a new covenant. The old covenant was made when God's people left Egypt and they went to Mount Sinai and they received the Lord to Mount Sinai. And this was effectively a covenant, an agreement between God and man and man and God. And it was actually something that was sealed in blood at that time. Uh, there was a sprinkling of blood over the people which actually sealed the covenant. But what we then learn is that the prophets start to speak of a new covenant that would come. And we ultimately see that fulfilled in Christ. But one of the actual prophets was Jeremiah who spoke of this covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. So that's the old covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So we see that this new covenant is actually connected also with the forgiveness of sins. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And this new covenant would also be sealed by blood. Whose blood would it be? It would be the blood of Jesus. The old covenant was with the, was with the blood of animals. This new covenant is with the blood of Jesus. And this covenant language, this new covenant that is being referred to, is intimately connected with the forgiveness of sins. So through the new covenant and through the expression of his blood being poured out, we know that what Jesus' death means is that it means the forgiveness of sins. And we can be forgiven, which is our second point. And now we come to our third point, which is an easier point for us to be able to, to grasp. We've done the heavy lifting in this passage. The third point is, is that because of his death, we actually have a future. Jesus speaks in verse 25 in this way to his disciples. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He is saying, I will not drink wine, which is depicting celebration, until such time as I enter into the kingdom of God, into heaven itself. Now, he is saying that heaven is coming. He would be entering into it. And he's also assuring us of that 
wonderful hope ourselves. So it is actually a picture of resurrection life, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But it is, again, intimately connected with his death upon the cross. It is through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and his, his life being given, his blood being poured out, that we have this forgiveness of sins, which enables us to have a relationship with God. You see, God is holy. We are not. Sin separates us, but his blood washes away that sin. And because he died upon that cross, we can be assured that that blood has washed away that sin. So Jesus has given us a future through his death. And what a marvelous future that is. Well, these are great promises that God has made to us. We are saved. We are forgiven. We have a future. However, if you just walk in to church or and, and hear these sorts of things, or perhaps look at a video and a preacher speaking about these sorts of things, you could well think, well, God has made these promises to me and you take those promises and never have anything more to do with Christianity. Well, I could see how they could be led to that conclusion. However, this passage also shows us something very important. When Jesus takes that bread in verse 22, he says, take it, this is my body. Take it. You have to receive what he is giving you. It is the same with the wine. He gives the wine and he's referring it to it as his, his blood. And he's saying that it also needs to be received. What he's referring to is that people need to receive these privileges, that they are saved, that they are forgiven, that they can have a future. They need to receive that. And the Bible tells us that we receive these privileges by faith in Jesus and by following him. So there is an action required, a response that is required by us. We do need to be people who believe in Jesus and follow him. Two illustrations just to bring this point home. Could you imagine the most beautiful meal of food in front of you? Imagine you're really hungry and there's this beautiful pile of, I don't know, all sorts of meats and vegetables, everything that you, you just love to eat and is going to be really good for you. It's right in front of you. You know, you could sit there and starve to death still. Unless, of course, you receive that food into your mouth and into your digestive system so it brings blessing to you. It can be the same with the promises that God makes to us. We can see them, but they can never be appropriated to us. Unless, of course, we are people who receive them in the way that the Bible is saying through faith in Jesus Christ. So just as you need to take a fork to that meat and put it in your mouth and receive that into your body, what we also need to do is to receive Jesus into our life as our Lord and Saviour through faith in him. There is a lovely, lovely and famous picture, of course, and that is by Leonardo da Vinci. This wonderful depiction of the last supper with Jesus there with his disciples the 12 disciples what is very interesting though about this particular picture and is very significant for Leonardo da Vinci 
is the fact that they're all on one side of the table. Now, that is quite unnatural. When have you ever been to a dinner party or an event where you're di dining with people and it's all one-sided? It just doesn't happen. It's very, very interesting because Leonardo da Vinci is making a point, a point about invitation. Jesus is actually inviting us to share the table with him. He is inviting us into relationship with him. He wants us to receive these wonderful privileges of salvation, to know that we are saved, to know that we are forgiven, and to know that we have a future. And that painting hangs in some famous art gallery throughout the world and is replicated in many ways. But it is being held out to us. The invitation is being held out to us that we actually need to receive these wonderful, wonderful benefits. We are saved, we are forgiven, and we have a future through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically in what he has done for us by dying on the cross.